message was recorded at Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com. So I don't know um, how your week's been. I've had a really fun, interesting full week. Uh, got to spend a couple of days in the beginning of the week celebrating our 13th wedding anniversary. So come on. So you know, whatever. So Jen has a hard job to do, okay, guys? Encourage her. Um, and then we got back at our wedding, our anniversary present to each other is we are going to put grass in our backyard. I'm like, <laughs> how boring are we? Like, right? Just super, you just know you're getting older when you're like, let's put a lawn in to our backyard. <laughs> so we, we did that. And, um, and I, you guys have heard me talk about how I'm really not handy, and it's very true. But I do love working outside. I love landscaping. I did it for a few years before I went to college. Um, so I'm like, oh, this, I'm going to tackle it. I'm going to do it. And whenever I told people, like, hey, I'm going to be planting grass in my backyard, everyone's like, oh, is it going to be a sermon analogy? I was like, yes, of course. <laughs> Duh, I don't do things unless it becomes a sermon analogy. I'm just kidding. I wasn't planning on it, but then so many people asked that. I just couldn't help as I'm, like, planting grass in my backyard. Like, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's kind of how God works, too. <laughs> so for those, here, here's a sermon analogy on, on planting grass, but we... We've been in a series called Heart Renovation, and we've been using the idea of renovation as kind of a word picture for what God is doing in our life and our hearts, and uh, could not help but think as I began the process of doing this, um, you can, I think, show the first picture. Um, so I, this is our backyard as of Tuesday morning, um, and it, it just looks like the Sahara Desert. It's just compacted dirt, nothing, not even weeds dare to grow there. And so I go to this place and rent that, that large machine. And I go, I'm like, hey, I need, you know, a, a tiller and things like that. And he's like, cool. And he looks at me, he's like, just, just you? I'm like, what's wrong with that? He's like, well, it's like 550 pounds. I'm like, cool, I got it. So, um, so I rent this behemoth of a machine and it just wrecks me like for three to four hours. I'm just in a wrestling match, a losing wrestling match with this thing, but eventually get like kind of the ground tore up and, um, and then we, we spent and then like laid a bunch of topsoil over our whole backyard because nothing's growing in what was there. And, uh, and so the whole Wednesday, literally sun up to sundown, I think it was 14 hours, I was just prepping soil. No grass, just prepping soil. And then Thursday morning at 6.30 in the morning, grass shows up, <laughs> magic grass fairy, a little sod, like pallets of sod showed up. And so as our kids are sleeping, they go to bed at night uh, with dirt, and they wake up in the morning and, <laughs> oh, you, you skipped it. There's one more back there. Go one back. So that's, so then they woke up to that, and they're like, what? It's a Christmas morning. I'm like, I know. So that was the, kind of the fun, easy part, just laying out the grass. And I was thinking, I'm like, that really is a great picture for, for our transformation in Christ. So much of what God is doing is you can't see, and it takes the longest, and sometimes it's the hardest. 
And we always want to rush towards like, hey, let's see the finished product. Let's see your, what your choices, how you're acting, and things like that. But that's all a result of what God has been doing inside of you for much longer amount of time. Um, but probably the analogy, you can go to the next picture, that was my favorite, is my little helper, Augustine, the whole time. Dada, I help? I help you, Dada? I'm like, uh, sure. You know, and so it's a little dangerous with the tiller, but he did great handling it by himself. So just, just kidding. We didn't let him touch it. Um, but the, his idea of helping was I would fill up the wheelbarrow full of, like, grass. It was, like, pretty heavy. And then he would just want to sit on top of it. And I was just, just adding, like, an extra, you know, 30 pounds. I'm like, sweet. So I'm, like, wheeling him around and stuff like that. And, and whenever, like, it was, like, lunchtime, we had to stop. Like, he was so upset. like, no, I help. I help. And um, so Jen took this picture of him helping me, his favorite position. And the reason I love this picture is I really do, as I reflect on the past eight months of this series, this actually is what transformation looks like, is God is doing the hard work. It is his Holy Spirit inside of us turning over old soil, planting new seed, and, and we have a part to play, but oftentimes it looks more like rest than anything else. It's resting in his love, resting in his work, receiving his peace. And so just a little picture for you as we, in this, this journey of heart renovation, as we even talk about some, some tough stuff today, let's not forget this picture. Let's not forget this picture that we are called to rest in God's work and love and spirit and peace. And through that, we begin to see transformation. Um, this last part of our series is really devoted to that second picture that I show of just like, it's, it's the stuff people see. It's our behavior, it's how we act. And we've summarized that into this phrase of do what Jesus did. And that phrase is underneath the umbrella for Jesus at this idea of the kingdom of God. And if you've been here the past few weeks, you've heard us reference that every single week because if we do what Jesus did, we have to understand it's about the kingdom of God. And so we've been reading actually the same passage of scripture Jesus read in his opening sermon. His manifesto is he grabbed the scroll from, scroll from of Isaiah and read Isaiah 61. We've been going, to going through line by line and unpacking God's heart as his kingdom of light and life and Jesus being king is advancing against the kingdom of darkness and death where our sin and Satan himself is enthroned and the kingdom is coming and advancing and overthrowing that. And this is what that looks like. Isaiah 61 says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. And verse 2 is what we're going to focus on today. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. This second verse here um, is packed with these sentences that are referencing other points in Scripture, or other prophecies Isaiah's made. That first line, the year of the Lord's favor, um, should not be read as like, you had a good year. If you remember last week, this is that year of the Lord's favor. It was a reference to the year of Jubilee, which is a, a Hebrew tradition that every 50 years, debts were forgiven, prisoners were released, slaves were released, um, land was returned, and it was a big, massive restart for the whole culture. 
And when Jesus shows up and announces this year of the Lord's favor, what's interesting is he's announcing not just a a calendar year, he's announcing a length of time which we are still living in. It's very interesting. So we are living in this year, this period of time of the Lord's favor. The jubilee we have through Jesus's death and resurrection and the gift of his Holy Spirit, we live in that year. If you notice in Luke's account of the gospel, this is where Jesus stops reading the passage, which is fascinating. This is the year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor, and then he doesn't finish it. And the reason for that is because the rest of the passage is yet to be fulfilled. So he, oh, he kind of ends his speech with, it's the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee. Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. This begins now. But then if we go back to Isaiah 61, what we find is it's not the end of the story. After that, the next line is that there will be a day of vengeance of our God. Um, I don't know about you, but when I, when I first read that, I was kind of like, kind of cringed a little bit. It's like, oh, it's scary. But we have to remember something. Whenever you read about vengeance, God's judgment, he's writing to a people who have been oppressed, have been gutted, have been absolutely annihilated at some points in history by other, by other oppressive powers. And so, For the audience who read this 700 years before Jesus and for the audience who would have known about this passage that Jesus read this to, the day of the Lord's vengeance was not a day they cringed for. It was a day they longed for. Please come and make and bring your judgment. Make things right again. Put Put the powers that be, the evil and the darkness of the world put it in its rightful place. They longed for the day. Sometimes as a, as a culture, we tend not to talk about the day or God's judgment. But in light of the cross, God's judgment is not something we need to fear, but it is something that we eagerly await. Something we long for, like these people long for. Bring your vengeance. The, the evil that has, is running the world right now, put an into it. It needs to stop. Some of the things we read in the news should lead us to this desire, Lord, when will it end? Come, come soon. And that's, that's the, the reference. Now, Jesus, the reason why Jesus did not read this yet is because this day has not come yet, but it's coming. Jesus is coming back, and he will eradicate the world from evil from death, from sin, from sickness. And this, for the original audience, and it should be for us, is something that we long for. God, come. Maranatha, come soon. Come bring about shalom, what's right in the world again. And then he ends, the next phrase in this, is in this in-between time of this, 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 this year, or this season of life of favor, And this day that we know is coming, we comfort all who mourn. There's a lot of mourning in between these two periods. 
But our job is comfort. Our job is to stand with, to sit with, to walk alongside people as we wait for everything to be made right. So, uh, I, as I was looking at this passage today and I was thinking about and people in our church who have actively participated in this work of liberating captives, of bringing light to darkness, comforting those who mourn, and are actively bringing about God's righteous judgment. I began to start thinking about Pam Beal. Now, Mike and Pam are a couple in our church who have been there really since the beginning. They've opened up their house, and, and they're, they're a small group they've had for years as an open table. Um, they've hosted things for us. They've been a really big part. And what we found as we've gotten to know them is that she, Pam's involved in an uh, organization called Generate Hope. Generate Hope, um, I believe, is San Diego's kind of premier nonprofit organization that is not only fighting human trafficking, but rehabilitating and restoring victims of human trafficking. And so today, we're gonna, this is the, the organization or the people that we're going to be highlighting. Um, so can you guys put your hands together as we welcome Pam and her friend Annie as they come to the stage? Thank you, guys. It's got to slow down. I'll start with you. Um, so Pam, how, how did you uh, get involved or hear about Generate Hope? How, kind of what's been your journey starting to get involved yeah, with the organization? Yeah, so about three years ago, um, my husband came home from a weekend of volunteering at one of the safe houses, and he was putting up a fence and came home all dirty. I'm like, where, where have you been and what, what are you doing? You know, so he said, oh, I've been working at this house, putting up a fence for my friend that is, um, you know, running the safe house for Generate Hope. Um, it helps with women that have been sex trafficked. And I was like, what? I was very interested. And so I asked how I could be involved, and so I contacted them and um, started volunteering and doing some work on the background of Generate Hope, more um, with HR, uh, some facilities uh, on the houses, and also heading up their Love 40, bleh, Love 40 Gala that's going to be at the Aventine La Jolla um, in October. So I kind of do the background, but when Benji asked me to come, you know, talk about it. I also invited Annie, and she is the executive director for Generate Hope, and so she works more on the inside of the houses with the girls, so she also has a lot of good information to pass on. Awesome. Um, Annie, before I ask you a couple of questions, just to kind of let you guys full disclosure, uh, we'll be talking about some things that are pretty heavy. Um, but they're a reality, and we're going to talk about how, as the church, we can partner with and address. Um, but if at any point this feels maybe to everything like that, there's this a no judgment zone. You're welcome to kind of monitor how much you can hear or what you hear. Um, but the work they're doing is incredibly important, and so just wanted to kind of give you guys a little bit of a, a heads up with that. But um, and can you t- for those of us in the room who are unaware of what human trafficking or sex trafficking is? Um, can you just kind of educate us? So what, what is it? What isn't it? What are some things that we need to know? So human trafficking is, um, you know, basically slavery. It's modern-day slavery or a form of modern-day slavery. And so there's labor trafficking, um, which 
we don't serve those clientels, or we do, but they're also, um, they're sex trafficking, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. And so sex trafficking uh, occurs when someone uses force, um, fraud, or coercion um, to cause um, a commercial sex act with, a, with an adult, or when a minor's involved with the commercial sex act. And so there needs to be no coercion. It's just automatically trafficking. Mm. Um, and a commercial sex act includes prostitution, stripping, pornography, or any sexual engagement done in exchange for money or any item of value. So sometimes it's for housing, for uh, drugs, um, but that's really the definition of sex trafficking. Wow. Um, now, can you, can you talk a little bit? I know a lot of times when I was introduced to the idea, I immediately thought about other countries, mm -hmm. thought about Thailand, things mm -hmm. like that, which I know it is a big deal over there. Um, is this a problem in our city? Is this, you know, can you kind of talk to us about what sure. we're looking at here? So there's um, a number of myths about sex trafficking. And often, um, even myself, really didn't see this as a problem. In the United States, you think this is a problem in other countries. Um, but it's not. You know, San Diego is identified, has been identified by the FBI as one of the top eight um, areas for commercial sexual exploitation. Um, and so it's happening in this city. There's anywhere from three to 7,000 victims in San Diego each year. Um, and so it, it, it happens here at home. And many think that it's due to the proximity to the border and that the victims are foreign-born nationals. But the reality is 92% of the victims are US-born um, children, um, boys, girls, and women. And so it, um, that's one of the biggest myths and misunderstandings wow. about sex trafficking. It's just crazy to think about that 92% of those, you know, three to 7,000 San Diegans are, are from San Diego, or children that were brought up here. Um, something that you mentioned at our last gathering that was really interesting to me is how people um, currently are finding themselves trapped in sex trafficking. Can you kind of talk about what that looks like? Sure. So lately, the biggest way to recruit um, victims is through social media. Um, and so where before, traffickers would go to the mall. They still do coffee shops, clubs. Uh, but the majority of victims are recruited through social media. Um, the average age of a child entering um, sex trafficking is it's from 14 to 16 years old. Um, lately, we're seeing that age go down, and it's victims as young as 12 years old, 13 years old. And part of the reason is um, sex traffickers prey on the just their innocence and their um, naiveness. Um, and the younger they get them, the more they're able to cope, you know, have them in fear or threaten them or coerce them. I'm sorry, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> um, and so what we find is that uh, many children younger and younger have cell phones. And so the cell phones are a way to have kind of personal access to children. And so it's one of the, the challenges we had in San Diego last week. There were two 17-year-olds arrested for trafficking a 12-year-old um, wow. just, just last week. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Can, can you tell um, us a story? This happened to someone you knew. 
Yeah. Uh, can you tell us that story that just happened? So I um, go to a lot of trainings about this um, to be able to kind of educate others and to just continue to do the work that we do. And so I went to a training about the importance of parents checking their children's cell phones to see who they're communicating with. And a friend of mine had shared with me that her daughter had been withdrawn, kind of not interacting with family, in the room a lot, um, you know, on her phone. And so I, I shared with her, like, I really think you need to check her phone. Um, you really need to see what's going on with her. And so she did, and um, she was being preyed on by uh, a trafficker. She was being groomed, or um, we call it boyfriended. Um, and so she was young, um, didn't really understand what it was like to have a boyfriend. Um, wow. And so she thought that somebody she met that friended her was her boyfriend and was asking her to send pictures of herself, you know, first chest of herself, then of herself nude. And she was doing this, and it happened over a quick period of time, over two weeks is what we wow. found out. And that day, she, she had given him her address, and he was actually going to come. He, she knew what room she was in. She told him that she was in the back room to come through the garage, and I believe he was going to come and get her. He, he gave her, he shared where he was, his location, and when we looked at it, it was in Hollywood. And so, luckily, we were able to, you know, just by the grace of God that it wow. just happened that day, we were able to intervene and turn it over to um, law enforcement. Unbelievable. Um, I remember that was just so shocking to me, just thinking, um, yeah, you think about people being smuggled across the border, things like that, but it could happen to any of us. I think something you shared that was important is just for parents in this room just to be aware um, not a, only of your own children, but parents that you might know, who's, you know, your kids are friends with their kids, and um, education's so, so huge. Can you tell us about, um, tell us about the work that Generate Hope does? Like, what, what do you, you know, sure. you come across these women, or they're sent to you, what does that process look like? So, Generate Hope has been um, serving uh, survivors of sex trafficking for the past 10 years. Our founder, um, was a victim of sex trafficking herself when she was 16. Um, and then, you know, was rescued, was arrested and rescued and um, was told just to forget about it, never talk about it again. And so later she became a Christian. And she's actually, last year she was a CNN hero uh, for this wow. work. Uh, but she became a Christian and she knew that God would, was going to use this time that wow. she was trafficked um, for good. And so she had the opportunity through the ministry of a church to start a program, which is Generate Hope, to serve sex trafficking survivors. And so what it is, primarily it started as a safe house. So women were being, she actually was involved in rescuing early on. We don't do that anymore. Um, but after women are rescued, they come to our safe house. They come to our recovery program. And our goal is to, uh, first of all, introduce them to Jesus Christ and to let them know that they can be, they can forgive themselves because many of them don't forgive themselves. Wow. They blame themselves. Um, and so they also, um, we provide intensive therapy for them. Many of them suffer from PTSD. Um, there was research done that women who have been trafficked have the same levels of PTSD as Vietnam War vets. Um, and so it takes a while to get over the trauma. And so they, yeah. 
participate in five group um, therapies each week that's focused on the trauma of the sex trade, individual therapy, and then another big area that they need support in is really developing um, a livable wage career. As you know, um, you know, if they don't have the ability to be financially independent, it puts them at risk to continue to return to the life. And so we help them get back on track with their education. We help them restore whatever their goal or plan was for their life. And so we help them identify a livable wage career. They get um, enrolled in training programs, apprenticeships, or get back into college so that when they exit our program, they can their life is fully restored and they're able to reintegrate into society and just not be at risk anymore and just live in that freedom that was taken from them when they were trafficked. Amazing. Can you, um, I, I know there's probably people sitting here, like me, or just like two things. One, um, what do we look for? You know, what is there things that we should be observing when we're out and about in the city that could maybe give us a clue? Um, and if you could speak to that, and then secondly, is how do we get involved? You know, how do we, as, as a church and as individuals, um, if this is something that's moving in our hearts, what's kind of our next step? And so I, the best way to get involved is to, um, you know, just educate yourself more about the issue of sex trafficking and to realize and that it's happening in this community. Um, there was additional research done at the local high schools and 20 local high schools, um, there were surveyed, children were surveyed at the high schools. And at all 20 high schools, there were incidents of recruitment reported. Um, as well as at 18 of them, there was actually girls who'd been trafficked. Um, and so what I say is that if you have the opportunity, if you work with children, if you work with youth, if you just love them, pay attention to what's going on in their life. You know, usually there's a huge discrepancy in age between the trafficker and the youth. And so that's a red flag. Um, and report it. There's the national hotline where you're able to report any suspicion of, of trafficking, whether it be labor trafficking. Um, we had an individual who, the lady who did her nails was being labor trafficked here in Vista. And so she reached out to us and said, what do I do? And so we reported it to the hotline. There was a sting. She was rescued and, um, and you know, the, 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 relatives that were trafficking her were arrested, but that happens with youth as well. And so when in doubt, report it. Um, you know, be aware when you're traveling especially. A lot of the girls were flown, some of them are from out of state that we have in our program, and they were flown here with an adult trafficker that's 20 years older than them, really evident that, you know, they were not related in any way, and 14-year-old were led on the plane with these adults. And so reporting those things in hotels, um, that's a huge, that's where all of the trafficking happens. And so um, we actually, we were traveling for training and saw a gentleman who was clearly taking, it was a pimp and he was taking, um, you know, one of the women in for a job and we stopped, we reported it and they stopped them at the elevator. And so um, just, just being aware, knowing more about it um, and just working with youth to understand that they're valued. They, um, you know, have um, more value than what 
they think they do. Uh, oftentimes, youth are so insecure um, about where they fit in, and um, that makes them vulnerable. And so just continuing to um, empower and promote the importance of who they are as individuals. Thank you for coming. <laughs> no, she's my right hand. She's got to do all the talking. But um, So we have our big gala. It's once a year, and it's coming up October 5th. And there's many ways that you can help. Um, you can volunteer to help at the gala. It's at the Aventine La Jolla um, Hyatt. Um, we also, if you own a business or if you want to give a gift card for a silent auction or, um, or for a live auction item, if you own a, like a vacation home and you want to, you know, offer that to the auction, that would be amazing too. All the money goes straight to taking care of the girls um, and their care. Um, so, yeah, you can reach out to me or Annie um, if you guys want to get involved in that in any way. You can actually even be one of the check-in people that checks in the guests that are coming, or you can even come to the gala if you want. But yeah. that's our next um, and only big fundraiser uh, each year. Yeah. Um, and they have papers on in the back as you're leaving. Make sure you grab some because um, we'd love for you guys to get involved. Can we thank Annie Pam? Can we... So inspired by the work you guys do. Um, spend a few minutes diving back into scripture and just continuing to highlight the work that they're doing and other people in this room that is just so kingdom. It's so the kingdom of God, the heart of God. Um, and just kind of walking through th three things that we see in that Isaiah passage that we just read. Uh, number one, we engage in righteousness and justice. As people of the kingdom, this is what we do. Righteousness and justice are the two themes we see throughout the Old Testament again and again and again. These Hebrew words, tzedakah and mishpat. Um, and to understand Sedeca and Mishpah, righteousness and justice, it begins actually with, with another understanding that Annie touched on. It's the dignity that every single human being possesses. Uh, theologically, that phrase is called the Imago Dei, um, the image of God. Genesis one twenty seven tells us that uh, he created men and women in his image. Uh, this is why as cute as some of these puppies are around Encinitas and as much as attention as they get, they just, there's something about a human being that will always have something that nothing in the world, no creature, um, no, no plant, no invention, no building could ever have because it is this, the image of God, the Imago Dei within them. Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Texas, has this quote about the Imago Dei. He says this, the Imago Dei is God's investment in humanity of God-like glory and moral capacity to reign and rule the earth as his representatives. This is what sets us apart. So once we understand this idea of that every single human being has this innate divine dignity within them, then how you treat not just the person who looks like you, thinks like you, who you get along with, but every single human being matters. This is why when God created the people for himself, he created the nation of Israel, all of his laws are with this theme of righteousness and justice. 
Sedeca uh, and Mishpah. Sedeca, when, when, I, when I thought of righteousness growing up, I just thought, like, don't cuss. That was, like, my idea of righteousness, right? Like, you know, don't watch rated R movies, or at least the bad ones. You know, like, just don't do these things. And that was, like, I'm being righteous. Uh, biblically speaking, that, that is not even a fraction of what righteousness is. Righteousness is a relational term. Sedeca is this, you, you and I are in right relationship with each other. Um, I have not exploited you. I have not taken from you. Um, I've given to you. I've been fair and just. So that's the idea of righteousness. And the second idea is mishpat, is justice, is that you, and it's always in reference to those um, who are undervalued, under-resourced, being seen and elevated. What's rightfully done. And so you see a lot of this in scripture when there was a lot of violence. Uh, there was the, their, their judicial system was based on how much money you had. Um, and although we live in a country that is, that is not perfect, uh, ancient times, a lot of these things were even magnified a lot of the injustice and things like that. And so God calls for his people, not just biblically, but today for justice. We live with this intention because we believe that every single human being possesses the image of God. We have to live righteously and justly. And so when, it, when, he, when Jesus quotes the scripture, he ends this phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, this reference to the year of Jubilee, he's calling us to exist and live within this reality. This is how we are to live. This is why the work that Generate Hope is, that is doing is so vital. Um, and, but it's not just limited to those fighting human trafficking. It can happen in your workplace. If you own a company, it's when you treat your employees um, rightly. It's when you pay them a fair wage. It's when you go and spend money and you buy products that have been made uh, economically and environmentally, ethically. Uh, it happens when you treat your spouse with honor. It happens when you are neighborly to your neighbor. These are all opportunities that we have on massive scales and individual scales to bring about the righteousness and justice that God desires because he gave us, each one of us, his dignity within us. Um, I remember this happening growing up, uh, growing up in living in El Cajon, and we moved, and all of a sudden this little girl, she's five years old, I was probably 11, 12 at the time, started hanging out with their family all the time, and then she started telling us about some nightmares that she was having, and all of a sudden we realized they weren't nightmares, um, that she was in a house that was abusive, that her mom's boyfriend was beating her, and so this little girl started hanging out with us a little bit to more and more, and to the point we developed a relationship with this family, and the, the, um, the girlfriend would come over after she had been beaten and come to our house to find refuge. We called the police. And I remember as a junior hire being faced with this, uh, this sense of, this feels very uncomfortable, but this is the right thing to do. And as, as, a, as a preteen, I remember fighting this battle of just wanting to bury my head in the sand. I'm like, this is, just, this is too much. And at the same time, seeing parents model for me righteousness and justice, this is what we do as people of the kingdom. We bring bring people in who need help. We see them. We remind them of their value and their dignity. We started going through the process of adopting this little girl um, because uh, because of how entrenched uh, the mom was into some really um, awful addiction. 
and um, her grandparents ended up coming into the picture and, and adopted her, and she got into a better situation. But I remember at a, as an early age watching this happen, and it wasn't like a nonprofit they signed up for. It wasn't like a church program. It was just what you did when you followed Jesus. You care about righteousness and justice. You care about the Imago Dei in every single person. And this is why we will continue as a church to, to remind us this is why we are a church. It is not for you to come and hear more information. It is for you to come through the word of God, have transformation so that we can go and live out this kingdom. The second part of this um, verse, which is very fascinating to me, Jesus doesn't quote, if you remember that. It's because it's, it's not fulfilled yet. It is this day that he will come. Jesus will come again. And our, our second point this morning is as people of the kingdom, we eagerly await the eradication of evil. We long for it. When we hear about evil in the news, when we hear about sex trafficking, there's something in us that should burn with this desire, of this, this prayer called Maranatha, Jesus come, come soon. And, and there is... Again, I think when we don't have that, we're kind of missing something. We're, we're too blind to the fact that this world is, is in need of not just partial restoration, but full restoration. But that kind of begs this question, um, a couple of different questions in us. Before I do, just, just kind of an illustration I was watching this week. Because um, I think sometimes we talk about God's judgment. I mean, some of us are like, uh, that makes me feel uncomfortable because God's a God of love. So if God's a God of love, he would never, God wouldn't have vengeance, he wouldn't have judgment. Um, but as I've been watching my children recently, I've realized something in their hearts, they long for judgment. Um, I see this happen almost on a daily basis when someone takes someone else's toy, someone borrows someone else's clothes, someone got their hair pulled, and, and immediately there becomes these two routes my children take. One is they take vengeance into their own hand, right? And they'll pull their hair a little bit harder. They'll take one of their toys, things like that. And then what? It just escalates and gets crazier. And, and it's just, and all of a sudden, I have to go in there and it's like a UFC fight going on. And it's like, hey guys, this is chill. But there's a second route that they take, not as much as I would like them to, but they'll come and they'll say, dad or mom, dad, um, so-and-so did this to me. And what they're doing is they're confessing, I felt violated in my dignity. This was wrong. This was taken from me. And they come to their dad, and you know what they're saying? Make it right. Bring your judgment. Give discipline. And in that moment, there's a few things happening. One, they, what they're realizing is they'll actually get what they want faster with way less ramifications. They won't get into trouble, and it's actually done with the heart of love. And so what we encourage our children to do, I'll tell my kids, I'm like, um, when we know when I'm like separating them, I'm like, what should you have done differently? And they said, I should have come and talked to dad. Like, right, dad, dad can handle this. I know how to bring the discipline, the judgment, what needs to happen in the situation for there to be restoration. And so as a people of God, for us to say that there's no judgment would, would be foolish. We long for it. We want things to be made right. And so, but I think for us, it's actually understanding and trusting that God is the one who can bring judgment. And here's the good news. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, 
Judgment is no longer something you have to fear, but it can be something you long for. Because he has absorbed your discipline, your punishment, your debt, we now get to cry out for the eradication of evil and we don't have to fear that that includes us. Because we are now part of the righteousness of Christ. But it leaves us with a couple of questions. So what do we do while we wait? Do we just wait here and just let the world go on and be unjust? No, we already talked about that. The first thing I would encourage you to do is start asking the Lord to eradicate the evil in your own heart. It's a good place to start. Oswald Smith says that the, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. As much as it's easy to be like, oh my gosh, those, I can't believe those traffickers, and at the same time you're over here struggling looking at a website you shouldn't be looking at. Oh, I, I can't believe they're acting so selfishly when in your heart you're acting selfishly. My favorite is when I'm yelling at the top of my lungs, stop yelling at your sister. I'm like, ugh, darn it. What's going on in my own heart? Because that can begin now. Holy Spirit, come. What is, what is evil inside of me that you need to remove? And the second thing that we get to do that it says in Hebrews 10 is the author of Hebrew talking about the day, right? The day of God's judgment says this. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Don't. Don't think that those words are cutesy, okay? These are powerful words. Love, agape, self-sacrificing love, wanting the best for another person, good deeds, which is always tied towards a generous response to the poor and the needy in our life. This is what it says, I love this. Consider how we may spur one another on towards these things, love and good deeds. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encourage one another and all the more as you see here it is the day approaching. As we look towards that day of Jesus coming back, you know what his encouragement is? Keep meeting together. This is why I believe in the Sunday gathering. This is why I believe in the church. Because there's something happens when we get together and we spur one another on towards loving good deeds. Hey, let's continue to fight human trafficking together. Let's continue to feed the poor. Let's continue to rescue those who need rescuing. Let's continue to fight injustice in our world. But we need each other to do that. This is what the author of Hebrews is after. Is as you look towards the day, gather together and spur one another on, push one another towards love and good deeds so that we may become a robust community of self-sacrificing love and justice for the world. Lastly, I wanted to encourage you with this last line that he says in Hebrews 61. Comfort all those who mourn. There's, a, there's this gap. There's a gap that we, we live in this time that Jesus has come, we have the Holy Spirit, and yet we long for the eradication of evil, and in between that, he calls us to bring comfort. Be a people that, that knows how to to come alongside you. So two really practical things, questions I'd love to ask you and for you to ask yourself. Number one, who can you sit with? Number two, who can you stand with? Who can you sit with is a reference to what it says in uh, Romans 12. It says, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Be someone who knows how to sit with someone. If you know someone going through a hard time, be the person who brings comfort. Not like, not like good advice, okay, that never helps. If you've, ever, if you've ever lost someone, if you've ever been grieved and someone tries to come give you good advice, it's just like, oh, stop. You know what's the most helpful thing to do when someone's grieving and in loss? Just sit with them. Just be with them. I'm not going anywhere. 
I'm not afraid of the weight you're carrying right now. Matter of fact, can I carry some of it with you? Just who can you sit with? Who can you bring that comfort with? And, then, and secondly, who can you stand with? There's a part of us that when we hear things like this, that should rise up with us a righteous indignation. Proverbs 31, before it talks about a godly woman, talks about how we should all respond when he says, open your mouth for the mute. For the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Who can you stand with? And we've said this every week. We have one one more Sunday where we're gonna conduct some interviews. And at the end of this, you could be like, ah, there's so much I wanna get involved with. And again, I would ask you just to pray, Holy Spirit, what's my one thing? Or two things. What's my, where can I put my focus and my energy, my resources, my finances, my life, and my passion to help fight this thing? Who can you stand with? Who is the mute, the poor, the needy you can speak up for? And I think when we do that, we are learning how to stand in the gap between Jesus' coming and second coming. We become the agents of his kingdom, the ambassadors of his kingdom wherever we go. I'm gonna invite David to come up here and let's, let's pray. This message was recorded at Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com.